All right, we're going to go and start Pax Chapter 2. So there were lots of them. Peter heard how stupid it sounded, but he couldn't help repeating it. Lots? He plowed his finger through the heap of plastic soldiers in the battered cookie tin, identical except for their poses, standing, kneeling, and prone, all with rifles pressed hard to their olive green cheeks. I always thought he just had the one. No, I was always stepping on them. He must have had hundreds, a whole army of them, the grandfather laughed at his own accidental joke. But Peter didn't. He turned his head and looked intently out the window, as if he had just caught sight of something in the darkening black yard. He raised a hand to draw his knuckles up his jawline, exactly the way his father rasped his beard stubble and wiped serendipitously at the tears that had brimmed. What kind of a baby cried about something like this? And why was he crying at all anyway? He was 12 and he hadn't cried for years, not even when he had fractured his thumb, barehanding Josh Horahan's pop fly. That had hurt a lot, but it had only cursed through the pain waiting with the coach for x-rays. Man up! But today? Twice! Peter lifted a soldier from the tin and drifted back to the day he had found one just like it in his father's desk. What's up? he had asked, holding it up. Peter's father had reached over and taken it, his face softening. Huh? Been a long time. That was my favorite toy when I was a kid. Can I have it? His dad had tossed the soldier back. Sure. Peter had set it up on the windowsill beside his bed, pointing the little plastic rifle out in a satisfying show of defense. But within the hour, Pax had swiped it, which made Peter laugh just like him. Pax had to have it. Peter dropped the toy back into the tin and was about to snap the lid back on when he noticed the edge of a yellowed photo sticking up from the mound of soldiers. He tugged it free. His dad, at maybe 10 or 11, with one arm draped around a dog, looked like part collie, part a hundred other things, looked like a good dog, the kind you would tell your own son about. I never knew dad had a dog, he said, passing the photo to his grandfather. Yep, that's Duke, dumbest creature ever born always underfoot. The old man looked more closely at the picture and then over at Peter as if seeing something for the first time. You've got the same black hair as your dad. He rubbed at the fringe of gray fuzz banding the top of his head. I had it too way back. And look, he was scrawny then too, same as you, same as me, with those ears like a jug. The men in our family, I guess our apples don't far fall far, far from the tree. No, sir, Peter forced a small smile but didn't hold up. Underfoot? That was the word Peter's father had used. He can't have that fox underfoot. He doesn't move as fast as he used to. You stay out of the way, too. He's not used to having a kid around. You know, war came and I went and served like your father. Like your father now. Duty calls and we answer in this family. No, sir, our apples don't fall far from the tree. He handed back the photo. Your father and that dog, they were inseparable. All I'd almost forgotten. Peter put the photo back into the tin and pressed the light, the lid down tight and then slid it under the bed where he'd found it. He looked out the window again and he couldn't risk talking about pets right now. He didn't want to hear about duty and he sure didn't want to hear about any more about apples and the trees they were struck, stuck underneath. What time does school start here? He asked, not turning around. Eight, they said to show up early. Introduce yourself to the homeroom teacher, Mrs. Ramirez, or Ramirez, something I can't remember. I, 
I got you some supplies. The old man nodded over to his spiral notebook, a beat-up thermos, and a bunch of stubby pencils bundled together with a thick rubber band. Peter walked over to the desk and put everything into his backpack. Thanks. Bus or walk? Walk. Your father went to that school and he walked. Follow Ash to the end. Turn right on School Street and you'll see it. Big brick building. School Street. Get it? You leave by 7.30. You'll have plenty of time. Peter nodded. He wanted to be left alone. Okay, I'm all set. I guess I'll go to bed. Good, his grandfather replied, not bothering to hide the relief in his voice. He left, closing the door behind him firmly as if to say, you can have this room, but the rest of the house is mine. Peter stood by the door and listened to him walk away. After a minute, he heard the sound of dishes clattering in the sink. He pictured his grandfather in the cramped kitchen where they had eaten their silent dinner of stew. The kitchen that reeked so strongly of fried onions that Peter figured the smell would outlive his grandfather. After a hundred years of scrubbing by a dozen different families, this house would probably still smell bitter. Peter heard his grandfather shuffle back along the hall to his bedroom, and then the low spark as the television caught, the volume turned down, an agitated news commentator, barely audible. Only then did he toe off his sneakers and lie down on the narrow bed. Six months, maybe more, of living here with his grandfather, who always seemed on the verge of blowing up. What's he always so mad about, anyway? Peter had asked his father once, years ago. Everything. Life, his father had answered. It got worse after your grandmother died. After his mother, own mother had died, Peter had watched his father anxiously. At first, there had been just a frightening silence. But gradually his face had hardened into the permanent threat of a scowl and his hands clenched in fists by his sides as if itching for something to set him off. Peter learned to avoid being that something, learned to stay out of his way. The smell of stale grease and onions crawled over him, seeping from the walls from the bed itself. He opened the window beside him. The April breeze that blew in was chilly. Pax had never been alone outside before except in his pen. Peter tried to extinguish the last sight he'd had of his fox. He probably hadn't followed their car for long, but the image of him flopping down on the gravel shoulder, confused, was worse. Peter's anxiety began to stir. All day, the whole ride here, Peter had sensed it coiling. It always seemed like a snake to him, his anxiety waiting just out of sight, ready to slither up his spine, hissing its familiar taunt. You aren't where you should be. Something bad is going to happen because you aren't where you should be. He rolled, up over, he rolled over and pulled the cookie tin out from under the bed and he fished out the photo of his father with one arm slung so casually around the back and white dog as if he had never worried he would lose him. Inseparable? He hadn't missed the note of pride that had entered his grandfather's voice as he had said that. Of course, he had been proud. He had raised a son who knew about loyalty and responsibility and who knew that a kid and his pet should be inseparable. Suddenly, the word itself seemed an accu accusation. He and Pax, what were they? Separable? They weren't, though. Sometimes, in fact, Peter had had the strange sensation that he and Pax merged. The first time it happened had been the first time he had taken Pax outdoors. The kit had seen a bird and had strained against the leash, trembling as though electrified, and Peter had seen the bird through Pax's eyes, the miraculous lightning flight, the impossible freedom and speed. 
It held his own skin thrill in full body shivers and his own shoulders burn as though yearning for wings. It had happened again this afternoon. He had felt the car spin away as though he were the only one being left. His heart had quickened with panic. Tears stung again and Peter palmed them with frustrated swipes. His father had said it was the right thing to do. War is coming. It means sacrifice for everybody. I have to serve. It's my duty and you have to go away. Of course, he'd been half expecting it. Two of his friends' families had already packed up and left when the evacuation rumors had begun. What he hadn't expected was the rest, the worst part, and that fox. Well, it's time to send him back to the wild anyway. A coyote howled then, so nearby that it made Peter jump. A second one answered, and then a third. Peter sat up and slammed the window shut, but it was too late. The yips and the yowls and what they meant were in his head now. Peter had only two bad memories of his mother. He had a lot of good ones, too, and he often took them those out to comfort himself, although he worried that they might fade from so much exposure. But the two bad ones had buried deep. He did everything in his power to keep them buried. Now the coyotes were baying in his head, unearthing one of them. When he had been about five, he had come upon his mother standing dismayed beside a bed of blood-red tulips. Half of them were standing at attention, and half of them were splayed over the ground, their blossoms crumpling. A rabbit got them. He must think that stems are delicious, the little devil. Peter had helped his father set a trap that night. You won't hurt him, right? Fine, we'll catch him, then drive him into the next town. Let him eat someone else's tulips. Peter had baited the trap himself with a carrot, and then begged his father to let him sleep in the garden to keep watch. His father had said no, but helped him set an alarm clock so he'd be the first to awaken. When it went off, Peter had run to his mother's room to lead her outside by the hand to see the surprise. The trap lay on its side at the bottom of a freshly scraped crater at least five feet across. Inside was a baby rabbit dead. There wasn't a single mark on its little body, but the cage was scratched and dented and the ground all around clawed to rubble. Coyotes, his father had said, joining them. They must have scared it to death trying to get in, and none of us even woke up. Peter's mother had opened the trap and lifted out the lifeless form. She held it to her cheeks. There were just tulips, only a few tulips. Peter found the carrot one end nibbled off and threw it far away as he could. Then his mother had placed the rabbit's body in his cupped palms and gone to get a shovel. With a single finger, Peter had traced its ears, unfurling like ferns from its face, and its paws miraculously tiny, and the soft fur of its neck slick with his mother's tears. When she'd returned, his mother had touched his face, which burned with shame. It's okay. You didn't know. But it wasn't okay. For a long time afterward, when Peter closed his eyes, he'd seen coyotes, their claws raking dirt, their jaws snapping. He saw himself where he should have been keeping watch in the garden that night. Over and over, he saw himself doing what he should have, rising from his sleeping bag, finding a rock and hurling it. He saw the coyotes fleeing back into the darkness, and he saw himself opening the trap to set the rabbit free. And with that memory, the anxiety snake struck so hard that it stunned Peter's breath out of him. He hadn't been where he should have been, and the night the coyotes killed the rabbit, and he wasn't where he should be now. 
He grasped to fill his lungs and sat bolt straight up in bed. He tore the photo in half and then in half again and pitched the pieces under the bed. Leaving packs hadn't been the right thing to do. He jumped to his feet. He had already lost a lot of time. He fished some cargoes, a long sleeve flam- camouflage t-shirt, and a fleece sweatshirt from his suitcase, and then an extra set of underwear and socks. He stuffed everything into his backpack, except the sweatshirt, which he tied around his waist. Jackknife in his jean pocket, wallet, he debated for a minute before he, between his hiking boots and his sneakers, and he decided on the boots, although he didn't put them on. He looked around the room, hoping to find a flashlight or anything resembling camping equipment. The room had been his father's when he had been a boy, but aside from a few books on a shelf, it was clear his grandfather had cleaned all his things out. The cookie tin had seemed to surprise him, an oversight. Peter bumped his fingers over the spines of the book. An atlas. He pulled it down, amazed at his luck, and flipped through it until he came to the map that showed the route he and his father had traveled. You'll only be 300 miles away. His father had tried to bridge the silence of driving a couple of times. I get a day off, I'll come. Peter had known that it would never happen. They didn't give days off in war. Besides, it wasn't his father he was already missing, and then he saw something he hadn't realized. The highway snaked around a long range of foothills. If he cut straight through those instead of following the highway, he could save a lot of time, plus reduce the risk of being caught. He started to rip out the page and then realized he couldn't leave his grandfather such an obvious clue. Instead, he studied the map for a long moment and then replaced the atlas on the shelf. 300 miles? It looked like he could shave off a 100 of them by taking the shortcut. So say around 200? If he could walk at least 30 miles a day, he could make it in a week or less. They'd left packs at the head of the access road that led to the ruins of an old rope mill. Peter had insisted on this road because hardly anyone ever used it. Packs didn't know about traffic, and because there were woods and fields all around, he'd go back and find packs there waiting in seven days. He wouldn't let himself think about what might happen to a tame fox in those seven days. No, Pax would be waiting at the side of the road, right where they'd left him. He'd be hungry for sure and probably scared, but he'd be okay. Peter would take him home. They would stay there, just like someone tried to make him leave this time. That was the right thing to do. He and Pax, inseparable. He glanced around the room again and resisting the urge to just run. He couldn't afford to miss anything. The bed, he pulled the blanket off, rumpled the sheets, and punched the pillow into till it looked slept on. From his suitcase, he took out the picture of his mother he had kept on his bureau, the one taken on her last birthday, holding up the kite Peter had made for her, and smiling as if she'd never had a better present in her life, and he slid it into his backpack. Next, he pulled out the things of, of hers that he had kept hidden in his bottom drawer at home, her gardening gloves still smudged with the last soil she'd ever lifted, a box of her favorite tea, which had long ago lost its peppermint scent, the thick candy cane knee socks she wore in winter. He touched them all, wishing he could take everything back home where it belonged, and then chose the smallest of the items. A gold bracelet with an enameled phoenix charm she had worn every day and tucked it into the middle of his backpack with the photo. Peter surveyed the room a last time. 
He eyed his baseball and glove and then crossed to the bureau and stuffed them into the backpack. They didn't weigh much, and he wanted them when he was back home. Besides, he just felt better when he had them. Then he eased the door open and crept to the kitchen. He set the backpack on the oak table, and in the dim light from above the stove, he began to pack supplies. A box of raisins, a sleeve of crackers, and an empty jar of peanut butter. Packs would come out from hiding spot from, for peanut butter. From the refrigerator, he took a bunch of string cheese sticks and two oranges. He filled the thermos with water and then hunted through drawers until he found matches, which he wrapped in tinfoil. Under the sink, he scored two lucky finds, a roll of duct tape and a box of heavy-duty garbage bags. A tarp would have been better, but he took two bags with gratitude and zipped the back. Finally, he took a sheet of paper from the pad beside the phone and he began a note. Dear Grandfather, Peter looked at the words for a minute as if they were a foreign language and then crumpled the paper up and started a new note. I left early, wanted to get a good start on school. See you tonight. He stared at the page for a while, too, wondering if it sounded as guilty as he felt. At last he added, Thanks for everything, Peter placed the note under the salt shaker and slipped out. On the brick walk, he shrugged on his sweatshirt and crouched to lace his shoes. He straightened up and shouldered his backpack, and then he took a moment to look around. The house behind him looked smaller than it had when he had had arrived, as if it were already receding into the past. Across the street, clouds scuttled along the horizon, and a half-moon suddenly emerged, brightening the road ahead. That's the end of chapter two.